John 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again... Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the, on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us alone in this world, but you've given us your word. You've given us your Holy Spirit. And Father, you're working in us to bring us to bring us to glory, and for that we praise you. We ask now that you be with Tom, give him the words to say, and give us hearts to receive it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Good morning. Hey Ken, it's uh, it's kind of bright in here this morning. Would you do me a favor and just turn up that darkness switch? It's the it's the it's the big black one over on the left side. That says darkness. Just Crank that up, and that'll kind of offset, you know, overwhelm some of this light. All that technology, and we don't have a darkness switch? I guess I'll have to talk to the elders, see if we can get one requisitioned here. I guess we'll just have to leave it like it is then. Just a little teaser there about darkness and light. At the, at the end of the passage that we looked at last Sunday... Jesus concluded his public ministry with a statement about darkness and light. 
in verses 35 and 36, right at the end of his last public address recorded in the Gospel of John to a mostly Jewish multitude gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. Jesus said, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. Immediately after those words, John tells us these things Jesus spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. Jesus took the light somewhere else. And then John presents the problem that he will spend the rest of this chapter addressing. He says, Though Jesus had performed so many signs before them, Yet they were not believing in him. They were not believing in him. Everything that John writes in the rest of this chapter, including the words of both Isaiah and Jesus, are all tied to this matter of Israel's rejection of Jesus. A rejection not only by the leaders at the Jerusalem temple, but by the multitude of Jews gathered for this great festival. John's first mention in this gospel of Israel's national rejection of Jesus is found in his opening prologue. There in chapter 1, just as here at the end of Jesus' public ministry in chapter 12, John employs the imagery of light and darkness to drive home his point. As I read from the prologue, listen for what John tells us about the response of men to the true light. John 1, verse 9, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even, or that is, to those who believe, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Our passage this morning is about that same true light whose name is Jesus, the light by which God has most clearly, most fully, and most personally made himself known to mankind. And the passage is about the response of people to that marvelous light. And the worldview-defining point of this passage, as it applies to human beings, is that each man's response to that light is that man's response to God. And I use the word man generically. Every person, every man, woman, and child's response to the light of Jesus Christ is that person's response to God. People have many names for their various constructs of God. Many people claim to love God, to worship God, to honor God. But the truth of the matter by God's very clear declaration is that if they reject the Father's witness concerning His Son, the witness that His Son is the Messiah, Savior, and God, 
sent from heaven to earth, if they reject that Messiah, they reject God. As Jesus said so pointedly back in John chapter 5, verse 23, whoever does not honor the Son just as he honors the Father does not, in fact, honor the Father who sent him. He may claim to honor the Father, but he doesn't. Your response to Jesus is your response to God. Now that we've reached this critical juncture at the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry, John's making very sure that we get the central importance of that proposition before he takes us the rest of the way to the cross. Last week we saw that Jesus concluded his public ministry with a very straightforward command. And I included verses 35 and 36 in the reading this morning because they're really transitional into this section. In the first part of verse 36, Jesus said, Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. In the verse just before that, he said to the multitude, Walk while you have the light that the darkness may not overtake or overwhelm you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. Now that word overtake or overcome in a verse that's talking about darkness and light should point us back to John chapter 1, to the prologue, where where John uses the same terminology. In John 1 verses 4 and 5, he says, In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome the light. The darkness does not overcome or overwhelm the light. If you walk into a very, very dark room and turn on even the dimmest of lights, what happens to the darkness? Well, even a little bit of light begins to overtake the darkness. And what happens when you turn on a really bright light? The darkness is gone. It's gone. But what if all that brightness is uncomfortable to you? Can't you just crank up the darkness a little bit? Offset, you know, offset some of that light? No. You cannot. Because darkness is the absence of light. Darkness will overtake you if you decide to hang out where the light isn't. And a lot of people do exactly that. But darkness can never overtake light. Right after Jesus gives his parting command to this multitude to believe in the light, John then tells us in the second half of verse 36 that Jesus departed and hid himself from them. He took the light to another place. And now this mostly Jewish multitude was at a critical crossroads. The light that revealed God to man had been shining right in their midst more brightly than any other generation of mankind had ever gotten to see it. Now that light departed and hid himself from them. They could either stay in the dark and be overcome by the dark, or they could follow the light that overcomes the darkness. And which did they choose? 
Verse 37 says, Though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were, were not believing in him. The Jews, more than anyone else who had encountered Jesus during his earthly ministry, had reason to believe in him. <laughs> they had the clear testimony of the prophets concerning God's promised Messiah. They had the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices, all of which foreshadowed and pointed to God's Messiah. They had the law, which revealed the character of God that Jesus alone had perfectly manifested every single day of his, of his life in the midst of human beings. And they had seen Jesus do the very signs and wonders that the prophets had said God's Messiah would do. Yet John tells us that that people, this overwhelmingly Jewish multitude, were still not believing. Well, why not? He proceeds to lay out for us the cause of Israel's unbelief in the light, their rejection of Jesus, and he tells us that that cause was that God hardened their hearts. God hid the light from the Jews. When John says in verse 36 that Jesus departed and hid himself from them, I think I believe there's a double meaning there. He's setting the stage for talking about a much more all-encompassing hiding of the light, the one that Isaiah talked about in Isaiah chapter 6. Listen as I read verses 37 through 40 of John 12. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he said, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now that first quote is from Isaiah 53, verse 1. That's the suffering servant passage that we talked about at length last week. John quotes just that one verse to establish the fact that Isaiah prophesied Israel's rejection of Jesus. They would not believe the report, the prophetic report, the message concerning Jesus Christ. Then John quotes a different passage in Isaiah, from Isaiah 6. And he says, For this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, God has blinded their eyes, He has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. Now you and I might not like that declaration very much. It may fly in the face of our concepts of fairness and of free will, but it would be kind of hard to argue that it's unclear. God declares through Isaiah, as clearly as words permit, that he prevented Israel from seeing and believing in Jesus and being saved. Isn't that what Isaiah says? God hardened the hearts of the Jews to make sure that they rejected Jesus. But there are a couple of things we need to recognize about God's hardening of the hearts of the Jews so that we don't get an emphasis in here that's, that's not biblical. First is God did not harden the heart of every Jew. All of Jesus' disciples were Jews. Most of the earliest believers in Jesus Christ were Jews, including 
probably all but a few of the 3,000 who came to faith in Jesus at another feast a little while after this, at the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem, after Peter's sermon and after they had seen the Holy Spirit descend on the on all the disciples and they started speaking the gospel in everybody's language. That was a Jewish crowd just like this one. 3,000 people. And then very soon after that in chapter 4 when that 3,000 became 5,000, it was still mostly Jews. In fact, when God started saving a lot of Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, the Jewish believers were stunned. See, they didn't, didn't realize that God intended to save Gentiles. God's hardening of the hearts of the Israelites that was prophesied through Isaiah and through other Old Testament prophets and manifested here in John was a national hardening, not essentially an individual hardening. Obviously, it meant that for a long time, most individual Jews would not come to faith in Jesus. But many Jews did in that generation and in every generation since. And while I want to be very careful not to minimize the significance of the hardening, the national hardening that that John is speaking of here, that Isaiah talked about, we shouldn't forget that most Gentiles in any generation do not come to faith in Jesus either. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and few are those who find it. And having said all that, I also want to be clear. John does not say that the reason God hardened the hearts of the Jews toward Jesus was because they, were, they had already rejected him. It says they rejected him because God hardened their hearts. God wasn't throwing in the towel here because the Jews had reached some threshold of animosity against Jesus. See, God, one thing you ought to know about God is that God doesn't spend his time reacting to people. God acts, and he acts in keeping with his character and in keeping with his eternal decree. And God decreed before the foundations of the world that this hardening of Israel would happen. We may not be able to get our hands around that, but we need to at least recognize that God alone is sovereign over every human heart. We are not sovereign over our own hearts, guys. We like to think that we are, but we're not. In John chapter 1, in his prologue, listen to what John said about how people come to receive the light. He said, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, that is, to those who believe in his name, and then listen to what he says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So how does a person come to receive the light? Well, it's not because their parents are believers. It's not because he wills himself to to come to faith in Jesus. It's not because someone else wills him to come to faith in Jesus. It is purely and only by the will and the work of God who gives life to dead people. He raises the dead. Dead people don't have much to offer, do they? 
We all begin this life blind to the truth, deaf to the truth, denying the truth, rejecting the truth concerning our sin, God's righteousness, God's judgment against our sin, and God's one and only provision to fix that problem, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. He doesn't say some of us. He says all of us, and it's not just Jews. In Romans 3.23, Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all everlasting toast unless God does something. So the spiritual blindness of any human being or of any category of human beings shouldn't surprise us. What should surprise us is that God saves anyone. And what should absolutely dumbfound us is that God sent His Son from heaven to earth to bear upon Himself the guilt and the penalty for your sin and my sin so that He could save the miserable likes of us. If God chose for a time to harden some in blindness and unbelief in order to accomplish His plan, that's His prerogative. It's not like any of us deserve to be saved. And that was most certainly at least part of why God hardened the hearts of the Jews in order to accomplish his marvelous plan to save Jews and Gentiles. See, if the Jewish authorities had not rejected Jesus, if the multitudes in Jerusalem had not rejected Jesus, the sacrifice that buys sinners out of slavery to sin wouldn't have happened. Jesus had to be sent to the cross as the perfect guilt offering And God turned the greatest injustice ever perpetrated by men into the greatest victory in the history of mankind. That was all part of his plan. In Acts chapter 2, Peter told them that other mostly Jewish crowd gathered for Pentecost that it was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that the Jews had Jesus nailed to a cross at the hands of godless men by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So at least part of the answer to the question, why did God harden the hearts of the Jews to reject Jesus, is so that Jesus would be crucified to save the souls of both Jews and Gentiles in every generation from every part of the world. And if you want to know why God has continued to harden most Jews against believing in Jesus, you'll have to read Romans 11. That'll give you plenty to ponder. The reason the Jews rejected Jesus was because God hardened the hearts of the Jews as a people so there could not be a national response of belief in Jesus Christ. In verses 42 to 43, John reveals another problem with the Jews' response to Jesus. He tells us why some Jews who had the light hid the light right after citing the passages from Isaiah that prophesied Israel's national unbelief, John says, nevertheless, in other words, he's talking here about an exception to that national unbelief, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You don't know anybody like that, do you? 
They were far more worried about being put out of the synagogue by the temple authorities than they were about getting their response to Jesus right. The Jews viewed excommunication from the synagogue worship as equivalent to eternal condemnation unless it got reversed. And in the near term, it had serious ramifications for any Jew's well-being financially and otherwise. If you were a Jewish tailor, for instance, and you got banned from the synagogue from worshiping with the people, the covenant people of God, your income stream immediately came to an abrupt end. Nobody brought their clothes to you anymore. The Jews took the approval of the temple leadership very, very seriously. John says they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now, it would be convenient for us to say that none of the Jews John is talking about here in verses 42 and 43 actually believed in Jesus. But before we throw all of them into that one easy-to-dispense-with category, maybe we should ask ourselves a question. Does my love of the approval of men or my fear of their disapproval ever cause me not to confess Jesus? in their presence. If I said no, I'd be a liar. And since I say yes, my question is, how is it that these guys are any guiltier than I am? Maybe than you are. John's agenda here goes well beyond just informing us that Israel's rejection of Jesus was foretold by the prophets and caused by God. As he writes here about the Jewish rejection of Jesus He takes the opportunity at this pivotal point in his gospel at the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry to once again cement in our minds the very concrete case that God has given to all mankind for believing in Jesus. He sets before us the extreme foolishness of not believing in the light whose name is Jesus. And what makes it so utterly foolish not to believe in the light is because he actually is the light. Jesus actually is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, as the writer of Hebrews says. He actually does show us God, and and what's amazing is he doesn't show us the reflected light of God He's the source of that light. When you look at the moon and you manage to see it at night and it's not hidden, what you're looking at is reflected light. But when you look at the sun, however you spell that word, you are looking at the source. That's radiant light. That's source light. I mentioned earlier that John cites Two different verses here from different passages in Isaiah. The first passage is Isaiah 52:53, and the second is Isaiah 6. Now look at what John says immediately after he finishes quoting Isaiah. John 12:41. John says, These things Isaiah said because he, Isaiah, saw his glory and he spoke of him. Whose glory did Isaiah see? Of whom did Isaiah speak when he wrote the words that that Jesus was citing? Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 6. If you've got paper or electronic Bible, turn to Isaiah 6. You need to see this. 
Many of you know this, but if you don't, this is one of those huge aha moment kind of things in the Bible. Isaiah 6, starting at verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting up on a throne high and lifted up. Some of your translations say lofty and exalted. This is the same wording that you find in Isaiah 53, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, those are angels, Each had six wings, with two he, that's each angel, covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. Whom do both the angels and Isaiah himself say was sitting on that throne? Yahweh. The great I am. So in John 12, verse 41, when John, then referring to that same passage of Isaiah, says, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. Whose glory? Whose glory is he talking about? Yahweh's glory. Now look at the pronouns in the next verse, verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Now let me ask you again, whose glory did Isaiah see on that throne? The glory of Jesus Christ. The glory of Yahweh. That's because Jesus is Yahweh. Before Abraham was, Jesus said, I. Now listen again to what John declared about Jesus in his prologue in chapter 1. He said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And then in verse 14 he says, And the Word, that the, the same Word who always was God, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. And then come down four more verses to verse 18. This is really this is really killer. No man has seen God at any time. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. See, no man sees God unless he sees Jesus. So, When Abraham was in his camp in Genesis 18 and the angel of Yahweh showed up with two other angels, this one called the angel of Yahweh, who was it that Abraham was talking to? Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. In Genesis chapter 28, when Jacob wrestled with the one called the angel of Yahweh and he had his hip dislocated, who dislocated his hip? Jesus. 
In Judges 13, when Manoah, the father of Samson, had a conversation with the angel of Yahweh, and then he, he fell down on his face and he said, we're dead because we saw Yahweh. Who did Manoah have that conversation with? Jesus. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, he has revealed him. Do you think Jesus sat around in all of the history of mankind while the Father and the Spirit intervened in creation and he just didn't do anything until he came from heaven to earth? Jesus has been active in his creation, revealing God to mankind ever since man existed. The reason that's so amazingly valuable to us is so that we'll know who it is with whom we have to do. Who is this Jesus that we worship? He's Yahweh. In verses 44 and 45, Jesus says, He who who beholds me beholds the one who sent me, just like Isaiah did. John's inclusion here of verses from both Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6 is absolutely brilliant. Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12 is the prophecy of Messiah, the suffering servant who came to be the perfect guilt offering for mankind, to take upon himself both the guilt of our sin and the penalty of our sin. The servant of God who died for the transgressions of God's own covenant people to whom the stroke was due. That means they deserve to die, not Jesus. The servant of God who was buried in the tomb of a rich man, who was then raised from the dead and given many offspring because he poured out himself to death. That great passage about the suffering, dying servant of God begins with these words. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted but not until he suffered and was humiliated and died in our place. Isaiah 6 is the vision that the prophet Isaiah got to behold of that same promised Messiah, high and lifted up on his throne with the glory of his robe filling the temple. Beloved, the suffering servant is the majestic. The suffering servant who was lifted up to die on a cross to pay the debt that you and I owed to God is the glorious King and beautiful Savior who will very soon be lifted up to judge every soul of man and to rule over all of His creation. Here in verses 44 and 45 of John 12, John Jesus says, Whoever beholds me beholds the one who sent me. But just before that he says, whoever believes in me believes in the one who sent me. The light of Jesus is the light directly from the source of all light. Whoever believes in that light comes into the light and will never again walk in the darkness. Jesus brings us right back to that last command that he gave to the multitudes and he gives us again the promise the one who comes to that light will not walk in the darkness. So believe in the light in order that you may become sons of light. 
Then at the conclusion of the passage, Jesus comes back one more time to the matter of unbelief. And he gives us one more critically important truth about man's response to him. He's already said, whoever beholds the Son beholds the one who sent him. Whoever believes in the Son believes in the one who sent him. Now, to make sure that we understand the implications of his perfect equality with the Father, he tells us what is true of the man who rejects the Son. He says yet again that he came from heaven to earth the first time not to judge the world, but to save the world. But then he says again that the words he spoke the entire time that he was here are the very words his father gave him to speak. And then he says, if you reject my words, those words will judge you in the end because they are my father's words. And then he says, the words that God commanded me to speak are eternal life. To all who who believe those words, trusting in the one who spoke them, The words that Jesus spoke are eternal life. But for most, whether Jew or Gentile, his words are eternal death. Because on the last day, the great day when this same Jesus will judge all of mankind, those same words given by the Father to the Son will judge every person who rejected them. See, every man's response to Jesus is that man's response. To God. Every man is destined either to eternal life or to eternal judgment based on how he responded to the light whose name is Jesus Christ. For the unbelievers in this room this morning, what you need to do about this passage is obvious. Until you put your faith in Christ alone, you will remain in pitch black darkness, bearing upon your own shoulders the entire guilt of your sin and the eternal penalty of your sin. You will stumble through a pathetic imitation of life, never knowing where you're going until you stand in the presence of the judge and find out. Your efforts in the meantime to turn up the darkness will never rid you of the light. You can fill your mind with all the lies that this world has to offer. You can fill your days with every frivolous pursuit in an effort to chase away the light. You can become so in love with the darkness that it overcomes you. So overcome by the darkness that the light is unrecognizable to you, but you cannot get rid of the light. The light whose name is Jesus will either save you or judge you, but the darkness will never overcome the light. You cannot get rid of the light. So believe in the light. Believe in Jesus Christ that you may become sons of light. For you who do believe in Jesus Christ, the ramifications of this passage touch absolutely everything in your life. Everything you know, everything you do, everything you say. 
Each man's response to Jesus is that man's response to God. And that response determines whether a man is destined to eternal life or eternal judgment. Is that what you and I are telling the people around us who are lost in the darkness? If it isn't, why? Why isn't it? Is it because we're afraid of the disapproval of lost human beings? You may be the only exposure to the light of Jesus Christ that a person gets in his whole life on this earth. How can we not say these things? How can I not say these things about Jesus? But the most, the most profound and transforming impact of this passage on us as children of the light is simply to remind us who it is with whom we have to do. So we will be propelled to worship and adore and obey Him more completely and more joyfully every day of our lives until He finally brings us to stand in His presence to dwell with Him forever. The suffering servant of God who died to save us is the glorious King and Almighty God who created us. And beloved, he's coming back to claim his own. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Who is this perfect sacrifice? Who is this astonishing light that obliterates the darkness? Who is this king of glory? His name is Jesus. Precious. Jesus, and I can say no more. Praise to his name.